This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. The title of the book, Getting Better, Healing Prescriptions for Patients, Families, and Friends, 100 milligrams healing, 75 milligrams humor, and the author is Mark Landiak, and Mark joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mark. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, great to have you with us, and this is your story. This isn't some bunch of theory. What we're going to hear is from you who have gone through this incredible journey with a very rare disease. And so your book is, as you put it, a collection of one patient's experiences as he learns how to cope with a debilitating disease for which there is no cure and learns how to get better. And what I was amazed in reading your material of how many rare diseases there are, my goodness. Yeah, pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, 7,000 7, registered rare diseases out there. And what's interesting is 95% of rare diseases have no drugs approved by the FDA for treatment. There just isn't a whole lot of money going into uh, research and development for rare diseases just because there's not enough people for the um, pharmaceutical companies to make a whole lot of money on it. So therefore, with the amount of regulation from the federal government that's involved and the amount of time that it takes to get a drug approved, it just is not um, cost effective for them to do it. Therefore, there isn't a whole lot of research that goes into it. So it's a lot of trial and error. We're talking about 70 million people. Yes. Yes, indeed. And what's interesting is uh, almost 50% of those are kids. Wow. Children. Wow. Right. Well, let's start with your story. It's 100% real, this book. Uh, it's uh, Obviously, it's a serious topic, but it's also very funny because, as your title points out, you've got to have humor in healing. But let's start with the Grand Canyon, folks. That's where this started. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, um, that's true. It, it uh, started in the Grand Canyon. My daughter and I had, um, as sort of our, our daddy-daughter thing to do, is we hiked and backpacked in the Grand Canyon, and or at least did. And uh, one time, five years ago approximately, she uh, called me up and she said, Dad, it's spring break. What are you doing? And uh, she said, do you want to go hike the canyon? And I said, absolutely. You bet. Let's go. And um, now... I had always been real healthy, Steve. I, I never really spent a day in a hospital in my entire life, didn't take any medications, uh, and um, tried to eat right and exercise, keep myself in good shape. So we get there, and, and um, we hike down to the bottom, and then we uh, hike around in the bottom. We did um, a 14-mile hike the day before uh, the disaster happened, and um, when we were hiking out, uh, we got up in the morning, beautiful day, started up, and about 20 minutes into the hike out, which is a fairly rigorous and, and um, uh, straight-up type hike out, I start um, having some really serious symptoms. Uh, heart rate starts racing, my um, 
body breaks into a sweat. I'm freezing cold, even though it's 85 degrees out, and um, and my legs can't move. I mean, I literally can't uh, I can't walk. And I'm going, oh my gosh, you know what the heck is going on? I thought I was dehydrated, so I sat down and um, rested for a little bit. Started up again, and um, uh, lo and behold, uh, 400 yards further, um, same thing happened. And uh, and that was sort of my um, indoctrination into the world of sarcoidosis, even though I had no clue what it was that was happening to me. A very rare disease. That it is, yeah. There's less than 200,000 people that actually have sarcoidosis in the United States, and that's... Uh, uh, kind of what they what they call a rare disease. If less than two hundred thousand people have it, then it's um, classified as a rare disease. So somehow you get out of the Grand Canyon and go see the doctor. Yeah, my my daughter literally. Thank God she's in, in phenomenal condition. She uh, literally put her hands on the back of my pack and pushed me up and out of the canyon for about seven hours. So uh, wow. I really owe my uh, owe my life to my daughter, Elise. Pretty amazing kid. So, what's your doctor saying to you after this incredible surprise, unexpected uh, challenge, medical challenge that you never ever expected coming out of the Grand Canyon? All right. So, um, in true uh, male ego oriented form, I didn't go to the doctor. I, I, <laughs> I got up to the top within. Uh, a uh, couple of hours, I was feeling good again, and uh, uh, so I said, "Oh, okay." I just I sloughed it off as something that was probably dehydration, and uh, uh, I said, "Okay, it was probably just you know, an off day," and because uh, I was feeling okay, and I didn't go to the doctor. Wow! Yeah, what an idiot, huh? <laughs> so. Well, I think a lot of us would probably do the same. You know, again, you know, you you were feeling much better and thought, well, that must have been something to do with uh, all this physical stress I was putting on myself. Yeah, it was a bit of a fluke. So it couldn't happen to me. I couldn't be sick. So, uh, yeah, it took a couple more incidents, Steve, before I finally actually did get to the doctor. I, I was in a, a 5K race with my boys, and... Um, had another disaster on that. I got you know about 400 yards into that and and had to slow down and stop and then tried to start and stop a couple more times and then realized all right something something's not right here. So um, I went in to see my doctor and uh, he came back in the room and said hey how you feeling and I said well I feel okay right now. And he goes I have a cardiologist on the phone and I sent him your EKG. And he, he wants to see you immediately. And I said, you're kidding me. And uh, so I went over to see the cardiologist, and and he starts talking about uh, doing a whole bunch of tests on me, sending me to the hospital. And I I, you know, I said, okay, well, you know, uh, I can do that next week. I'm going to be you know traveling tomorrow. He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm going <laughs> to right now. Right now. Wow. He's sending you to the hospital right now. And I go, you got to be kidding me. So, uh that that started a 10-month ordeal of them trying to figure out what was going on with me. And um, I went to, I can't even tell you how many doctors trying to, uh, to figure it out, and um, they couldn't find what was going on inside my body. So they finally pinpoint this rare disease. Yeah, they didn't really pinpoint it. I um, 
uh, in another act of, uh, uh, well, let's say questionable judgment, um, I decided um, they had me pumped full of steroids. And uh, so um, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm feeling okay. And uh, and I, I used to play a lot of racquetball, so I entered a tournament <laughs> just uh, just for no particular reason other than it felt like uh, you know, I needed some exercise. And uh, I didn't get through my first game. Um, I collapsed outside the court, and the paramedics had to come and revive me. And uh, uh, I don't even remember too much about the incident except for some guy pounded on my chest pretty good, and next thing I know, I'm, I'm in the hospital. So what do you attribute to recovering to where you are today and also the genesis of this book? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. And, and you know, while I was there, I didn't watch a whole lot of TV. Um, I started journaling. And, um, uh, you know, the book is sort of an accident. I didn't really plan to write a book. I started journaling and uh, and and listening and watching the things that went around me, and I tried to figure out, okay, how do how do I get out of this bind that I'm in? You know, what uh, you know, a doctor told me that um, they said, well, you know, we're we're surprised you're still here, and I said, wow, you know, that's pretty serious. And then so I figured, okay, what what do I have to do to stay around a little bit longer? <laughs> and uh, and that's what sort of the genesis of getting better was. I really kind of looked at. Um, a lot of the things just beyond what the doctors were doing to what I could do myself to have a positive influence on my own health. And that's where the five F's came from. The five F's of healing. Yes, and um, uh, which is all centered around, all right, so if, because at one point, I didn't know if I was going to get better. And, uh, in fact, I didn't know if I, how long I had, because they you know, if you read up on cardiac sarcoidosis, it's pretty serious stuff. And um, and I said, all right, well, how do I get better if not, and from a health standpoint, how do I get better in some other facet of my life? And then, uh, and what can I do uh, in terms of doing everything possible to get better on the physical side as well? And I boiled it down to um, uh, faith, family, friends, Fitness and fitness, both mental and physical fitness, because the mental game is a big, big part of the healing process as well. And and then the last one was fun, because I didn't want to uh, succumb to uh, depression or um, you know the negative thoughts that go along with really being seriously ill. And if you've got some folks out there that are are listening and they've been seriously injured or are seriously ill, you know they they probably know what I'm talking about. And um, so I, I boiled it down into these areas, and I said, all right, what are all the things that I can do that I can have some control over that will make me uh, at least feel better and get me through the day and have maybe a little better quality of life? And so that's where the whole process started. And, um, you know, as I said, I, I just started journaling and uh, writing things down and and that's where all this came came up, and uh, you know, I kind of learned about um, you know things that I needed to do. I was interfacing with uh, family or friends or clergy or uh, my nurses uh, or the uh, the doctors that came to see me, and and uh, it worked out pretty well. 
So again, everyone, we're talking about the five F's of healing, faith, family, friends, fitness, and fun. So this is much more than, obviously, operations and medications. Your book, Getting Better, seems to me in listening to you is really empowering. And you basically, you're saying that patients have a whole lot more control over their own healing than they realize. Yeah, and not only that, it's even one more step is you have to take control over your own healing uh, because the, the medical community does what the medical community knows how to do, and um, for 10 months they had no clue what was going on with me. And so I, I would do everything that, that I could to help them to help me. And at the same time, when I had people coming in, you know, when you're in the hospital and you're, you're laying there and people are coming in to visit you and, um, uh, you know, they, they just stare at you and, you know, you have these conversations. Uh, but I said, all right, so what, what can I do to um, get the folks that were coming in and visiting me to, to help me with my healing? And what I found out was I needed to really coach them. I needed to tell my family members what I needed from them. I needed to tell my friends what I needed from them. So, for example, I had some, uh, a group of friends that have great senses of humor. So I said, what I'd like for you to do is keep me laughing. You know, so when you come in, tell me a joke. When you come in, uh, you know, tit around with me. Don't, don't go into the medical mode with, oh, no, look at this poor son of a gun sitting in the bed. Um, you know, keep me laughing. You know, get me smiling. Give me something to think about other than what's going on inside my body. And um, uh, and they did that. And, boy, it was miraculous. I mean, I, I just felt so much better the way that I approached everything. Like you're going into procedures and, uh, uh, you know, taking a, a rather toxic um, treatment program with the medications that I had. Uh, all of those things just made such a big difference. And, you know, when my friends would come over, for example, I would never stay in the bed. I would say, come on, let's, let's go walk around the floor a little bit. And even when I got out of the hospital, what was interesting is they would give me a call and they said, would you like to go walk? And, uh, and sometimes I would tell them, I, you know, they said, what can, what can I do for you? And I said, when you get that question, you know, if there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. And I think most patients just let that line go. And... What I learned was when someone makes that offer, take them up on that offer. And so what I would say is, hey, what, would you come walk with me? And uh, it's so important when you're sick to um, not just lay around feeling sick. So for me, it's even when I felt horrible, knowing that I had to get up in the morning and go for a short, slow walk around my block, because that's all I could do at that time, um, because a friend was coming over, made all the difference in the world. And then they'd hang out and, you know, we'd have uh, uh, you know, maybe a little breakfast or, or something and, and we'd chuckle over some things that were going on and, you know, it starts your day off that much better. So you're in a mental uh, frame of mind that really prepares you to heal that day. Your book will have readers laughing and smiling. Uh, there's some <laughs> ridiculous stories that you share. Oh yeah, yeah there's, there's two good ones. Uh, did um, uh, you have any one in particular that? Uh, <laughs> no, just give us one of them real quick. All right. Well, uh, so 
you always hear kind of funny stuff that's in, in, going on in the hospital. So one morning I'm, I'm laying there in bed and um, I hear the nurse talking outside my room. And this has got to be like 6 o'clock in the morning or something like that. I just woke up. And then I hear the one nurse yell, Hey, Mary, 620 had a bowel movement. <laughs> and then the other nurse goes, Oh, that's great. Did you document it? Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, and I, it just for some reason just struck me funny, and I just started laughing hysterically. I said, "You know, who yells this kind of confer- <laughs> conversation at the top of their lung? It just doesn't happen outside the hospital, right?" You know. It's, uh, so it, it it struck me funny, and those types of things that. Uh, that happen on a regular basis. The phlebotomists, every morning they would come around and they would do their labs. And um, so when they'd walk in uh, in my room, uh, I would go, oh, no, you know, here they come. But, uh, so instead of, of just going, oh, no, no, go away, I would I would say, oh, Sharon, thank goodness you're here. I've been waiting for you all <laughs> night. <laughs> and, and one morning I, I shuffled out of my room and I had taken a paper towel roll and right off, my, my room was right off the elevator where they would come out every morning. And so I took a black magic marker and I taped up on the wall, all labs canceled today. <laughs> it was the first thing they saw when they got off the elevator. And, of course, I'd been kidding around with them for several days, so they probably figured out who it was immediately. And I get this knock at my door, and uh, I go, come on in. And, and she goes, Hey Mark, I got good news and uh, and bad news. And I said, well, what what's the good news? She goes, the labs are back on. And I go, well, that's not good news. I said, what's the bad news? She goes, we're starting with you. <laughs> well, you you were contagious. You got everyone in a different frame of mind, and that's what this book is all about. It's a guide to help people suffering from serious illness or disease. Again, everyone, the title, Getting Better, Healing Prescriptions for Patients, Families, and Friends, 100 milligrams healing and 75 milligrams humor. And we've been talking to Mark Landiak. Mark, what's the best way to get your book? Well, see, there's a couple of ways. Of course, you can get it on Amazon, but all the proceeds from the book are going to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and for patient assistance and research on for a cure to sarcoidosis and other rare disease. So um, if they go to my site at gettingbetterwithmark.com, all one word, uh, gettingbetterwithmark.com, they can order it on the site, and that's where the maximum amount of contribution goes back to the foundation. Uh, so... Um, uh, that's my recommended way to purchase it, but certainly they can get it at Barnes & Noble or on uh, Author House or on Amazon as well. Getting better with Mark.com, everyone, and I believe after listening to you, Mark, people are going to get better with you. So amazing story, and what's great about this, it has so far a, a happy ending, doesn't it? You know what, Steve? It's been miraculous, and it's really been incredible. I feel uh, uh, so blessed to be in the position I am right now, and um, uh, you know, I feel like um, you know, if you apply a lot of these strategies, you know, you can't help but feel a little bit better and just uh, 
you know, deal with your situation. And I've gotten some, some wonderful letters from folks who have read the book, and there's some uh, interesting reviews that are on Amazon from folks. And, and uh, boy, we're just getting really some, some great feedback from, uh, from readers on it. And I'm, I'm uh, just delighted that people are, are finding some benefit from it and maybe, uh, maybe feeling a little better in the, in the process. Thanks so much, Mark, for joining us on Author Talk. Steve, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Commitment, and joining me from Florida is author Joanna Andrews. Welcome, Joanna, to the program. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. This book is, uh, how would you describe it? Would you call it a self-help book, a motivational book, a devotional book? It does have those elements. What would you call it? It sure does. I would say it's a little bit of self-help. I'd say it's a little bit of motivation, um, spiritual inspiration, and almost like a how to discover God a little bit. Beautiful. You you are not a person that's about to teeter off the edge of the earth either. Uh, you are still active in education and um, have a background there in teaching and instructing others. You started out probably, I guess, not that long ago with a chapter that talks about the dream. What was the dream and how did that come about? Yes, yes, the dream. Well, I was probably about 20 years old, as a matter of fact, and I was a student at Florida State University and kind of struggling with where I was at in my life. Um, The struggle wasn't new, but I had hit this pivotal moment where I just felt like I could not really discover uh, who I was and what love was all about. And I think that's a concept and an emotion that we all really long for. So as I was mulling this over, I ended up having this dream. I fell asleep, and it was just really great. It was very eye-opening. And basically what happened in the dream was I had what I would call a visit. And that visit was from, from God and the Holy Spirit all in one. And basically, I in that dream, I look around, and I'm standing in water, which I thought was really interesting. And in front of me was was God, and he and I kind of had a conversation like you and I are having. And basically, I questioned him and said in that moment, oh, okay, as I'm searching for love in my life, 
the question was to him, I have to get through all of these people to find it, to find what I'm looking for, which I didn't realize at that moment was actually the full commitment. But that was what I, what I, you know, posed to him. And he really spoke to me in that dream and said, no, you don't need to go through hundreds and hundreds of people to find the love that I have. You need to come to me. And it was so emotional. I remember waking up and almost in kind of like a panic mode, like, oh, my goodness, what has just happened? And I knew in that moment that that was a real, real encounter that I had had. And I sought out a friend of mine and said, I need your help. And I knew that she was a Christian at that time. And I just I told her what happened. And she looked at me and said, oh, boy. And I was like, well, do you know? Do you know what that means? And basically, we had, you know, a 10-minute conversation. And she explained to me, yeah, I mean, I think what it means is you need to stop searching around the world and searching through other people. The love and security that you're looking for, ultimately, you got to go to him first. And I really appreciated her sharing that with me and kind of educating me because at that time I I needed that education, educating me on what that meant. And the funny part about it is I still, after that dream, you know, I still, there was probably a six year time period and it discusses this in the book that I still kind of went back to my own ways and working through the flesh and, and trying to locate what I didn't know was that full commitment. That was the whole, that was the valid void that I felt. I still kind of went through the same process. And then as it does talk about in the book, that sort of leads up to the surrender. But I'd say that that dream was a very pivotal awakening for me that this is real. Uh, Did you grow up in a religious environment that uh, kind of uh, nudged you towards this decision or this dream? Sure. Yeah, I would say so. I a little bit. Yes and no. I'm going to say yes and no to that. Um, I think that the seeds were planted. I grew up in a, a specific religion, um, which, you know, is is very appropriate if that is what some people, you know, choose to do. Um, and so I just accepted it because that's just the way that it was. I think that the seeds were planted. I think that my struggle was I didn't really uh, understand it, you know, and that's not a fault of the religion. It's just, you know, you're young and you're exposed in a certain way and it is what it is. And so I I had some seeds, I believe. But I felt like, why am I not really at my best? Like, what am I missing? And so just being exposed to it, definitely, it helped. And then, again, you know, it talks about more in the book that um, I continued to practice that religion in my early 20s after the dream, thinking, well, let me go back to what I know, right? Because that's typically what we do. Let me go back to what I know. And I did. And and that really helped. It, It pushed me even to another step, I think. And then um, I think I made the transition from practicing what I would consider a religion to more of practicing God and that commitment. And that just kind of led me to other, um, other outlets. Uh, you know, we belong to a, what we would consider an interdenominational or a non-denominational Christian church now. So, again, nothing against that religion. But, um, you know, in fairness, I think that the seeds were there. It was planted And I think that ultimately, through the commitment, you know, God really leads you where you need to be to worship. And for some people, that is a a religious church. There is nothing wrong with that. For me, that was not the case. And for me to move to the next step, you know, I had to go the way that he directed me. And that just meant more of a Christian-based 
influence for me. And that really helped me to understand the commitment and that one-on-one connection that maybe I didn't get as a young girl. As a uh, as an attender of a secular university, was there anything that maybe changed once you had this dream, or was life pretty much the same as it had been, other than the fact that maybe a few of your questions were answered? Sure. Yeah, I, I think that was a big change. I think I still had the battle. I had the flesh versus the faith battle. And once that dream hit, I knew. I knew that God loved me. And I knew that he was ready for me. What I didn't know was that I had to follow. I had to pursue. He came to me. He made it clear, as I think that he does for all of us, hopefully at some point in our life, he makes it clear, I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. But there is that aspect of free will. And I think that, you know, the free will continued quite a bit at the university and just, you know, just being young and having a good time and and that. That happens. That does occur uh, for some of us. And but I, but what I really think happened was that dream. I that never left me. Once I had it, I knew. Okay, it's up to me. And I think maybe I, you know, as a young person and really needing a lot of help and guidance spiritually, I was scared and I was afraid. And ultimately, I had to get over that and realize that fear is definitely not worth the commitment that I can have because fear is really just the enemy trying to keep you away from your commitment or so that's what I learned. You know, that fear is really just the enemy pulling at you and trying to continue to get you to do works of the flesh. So the dream was pivotal. It set, it set that foundation. It let me know that God is there for me and now I need to take this. And that's really, really important in the commitment. We do have to take those steps. God directs the path. Your motivation in uh, penning the commitment, was it because you have always had a desire to be an author, or was it maybe something related to your spiritual journey? That is such a great question, because it's definitely the latter. The funny thing is I never thought about really being an author or writing a book. In school, I wasn't really the mathematic type. So I was definitely more of an English. I liked writing. That was my strength. Um, But I never really, I never knew. I never thought about that. And that's the beautiful thing about the commitment is you have no idea what direction God is going to take you. But you will be happy because he already knows. He knows that plan. So I think really when I, you know, really kind of discovered the commitment, um, a couple of things came to my mind. And one of them was, wow why did nobody tell me this? And again, it's no fault of the church I was going to. It's no fault of my upbringing. It's not that at all. Um, The timing was perfect, but that was not a a feeling of anger. That was more a feeling of motivation, meaning now that I know about the commitment and God came to me directly, I need to share it because there certainly is at least one person or if not many more out there that are in my position. You don't know what you don't know. If you're not exposed to it, you don't know. And so I think that, um, you know, God really made it very clear to me. And as I was pondering this and as I realized, wow, God, you know, I need to share this too, because there's people out there that didn't, didn't get that connection the way that, that I didn't get it as well. And he kind of spoke to me and said, well, you know what, you're going to, you're going to write this book. And I remember thinking, well, that's, that's crazy. I don't know how to do that. And you know what? I didn't need to know. It, it doesn't matter because 
You can do all things through God who strengthens you, and you can do all things through the plan that he has for you. And that's what's so exciting about the commitment, is you just never know what what direction you're going to go. Much like working in the school and, and my job currently, I never really thought about that. And I didn't need to because it was just part of the plan. And as he orchestrates his commitment and as he orchestrates that one-on-one plan for each person, things change, you know, and things continue, you continue to progress, you continue to grow. And there's a really good chance that you might be doing something that you never thought. But ultimately, it's, it's those passions and those desires that give birth once you have that commitment. You have 122 pages. Describe for me the ideal reader who is going to feel... Uh, uh, connected to you uh, in the story and in in your journey? I have thought so hard about that question because I've really tried to develop who I think the ideal reader is, and I can't quite put it into a box Uh, because really I think it's for anybody. But I'll tell you this. I think that what's most important is I think that it, it probably will be super powerful for someone who's sort of at the end of their rope, if you will. Like, in other words, if you're a person out there and you feel at whatever stage you're at, whether you're 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, et cetera, if you feel whatever stage you're at, you've done everything you can and something is just not happening in your life. You're not going where you need to go. You're not feeling what you need to feel. I think that's a good platform to be at when you pick up the commitment and you read it because you're going to be more open. So sometimes desperation is the best thing that can ever happen to us because desperation means you're in need. And it's not that God wants us to continue to feel desperate, but he loves the weak because that's his whole purpose is you don't have to be strong. You don't have to figure it all out. You just need to decide if you're going to enter in your own personal commitment and God will guide you. So, you know, I think it's really for anybody that's seeking that spiritual connection, that one-on-one connection. But as far as like age or demographics or marital status, I really believe it's for anybody. I still read it. I've read it many, many, many times. I have friends who, you know, are married, single, and they've read it many times. I will tell you this. Probably the most powerful feedback I've gotten has, in fact, been from singles. And I don't know if that's because sometimes when you're, you're single, you have, a, as I did, you have a lot of time to process the whys and the hows and the what ifs and where am I going from here in all aspects, career, love, you know, finances, family. So you just have more time to process. So I will say that the most passionate feedback that I have gotten has really been from singles. And maybe that's because the origin of the the commitment gave birth when I was in fact single. Maybe that has something to do with it. But Mm -hmm. I would encourage anybody to be open, be open to it. Um, It's not going to put you in a box. It's your commitment. It's your one-on-one relationship with God. But it certainly will be a guide for you to get there. A motivational book, the uh, chapter titles, chapter one, the surrender, chapter two, the decision maker, chapter three, prayer, Four, obedience, five, doubt, six, believe, and then chapter seven, which wraps it all up, is the results. So it's well thought out. Is this a book that is going to be the end of your writing career, or is there something else motivating you for the future? Sure, yeah. You know what? I I think it's probably just the beginning. 
I am still in my own commitment and I am still growing and I'm still learning. And although I'm at a much different stage in my life and have hundreds of blessings that I uh, hadn't yet reached at the beginning of the commitment, I'm making notes as a matter of fact. I mean, I pray all the time and I make notes all the time. So I'd say that I'm working on the birth of the next book, really. I'm not sure if that'll be... uh, a specific sequel to the commitment or rather just the second phase. Uh, but I am working on it. So I am definitely going to say it is not over. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining me today. The title of the book again is The Commitment. Joanna Andrews. Joanna is spelled with an H. J-O-H-A-N-N-A, if you're doing a search online. And uh, this book is about 112, 14 pages, not a long read, but has some wonderful insight into into her personal journey and inspiration and motivation for those who read it. Where can they get a copy of this, Joanna? Sure. they can. Uh, I would encourage you to go to my website. It is available there. The website is Joanna Andrews, the number 4, tcforthecommitment.com. There will also be a blog that will be coming soon. You can also get the book on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Fabulous. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is a a very fine book for anyone that is on a spiritual journey or needs to start one, and uh, one that will motivate them in uh, in their search. Thank you again for being a part of today's program. Thank you so much. My pleasure for author... For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book, The Future of Clean Energy, Who Wins and Who Loses as the World Goes Green. And joining me is author Gary Schwindeman, who joins me from near Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States of America. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to visit with you. Your book is uh, extensive, but before I get into the book itself, let me give a little more of your your personal background. You have uh, a doctorate degree and uh, been involved in education for a number of years, including 17 years as the dean of college uh, and business administration at the University of Nebraska. Uh, You worked at the General Motors Institute and several other institutes of higher learning. Why did you become interested or focus on energy as uh, a topic? I know that you also are involved in a, a an investment uh, firm that focuses on this this area. Well, uh, I was dean of the College of Business at the University of Nebraska, and they were one of the leaders in producing the alternate fuel ethanol because in the United States it's made out of corn. 
So I knew a lot about uh, the making of ethanol, and uh, I was interested in whether a person could make money on it. And the answer was no, because it needed government subsidies to uh, to be um, uh, useful. But what happened is that they computerized the ethanol plants, and I was visiting one one day, a new one, and uh, it used to cost about $3 a gallon to make ethanol, and I asked him, how much does it cost to make a gallon of ethanol? They said $1. Wow. And gas was, at the time, $1.25, you know, and if you can make $0.25 on a gallon and sell a few gallons, there's real money in it. So we raised money from farmers and started an investment fund, which did very well because the worth of ethanol is competitive with uh, gasoline. Gasoline prices went up, and uh, we did very well, and the farmers did very well, and uh, we learned a lot about it. Now, and then uh, we got into wind and solar and so forth, and I decided to write a book on it because energy is so important. Uh, you mentioned in your book that ethanol is not gasoline as such. Can ethanol be used 100% in place as a replacement for gasoline, or is it always blended? It's always blended uh, in the United States. It can be blended either as 15% ethanol and 85% gasoline or 85% uh, ethanol and 15% gasoline. Another large producer is Brazil, and they produce so much that one time they uh, did have 100% ethanol cars, and you can use 100% ethanol, but it's made out of sugar there, and the sugar price went so high that they didn't have any ethanol. Mm. So they couldn't run the car, so they learned their lesson there. And now it always has to be blended. So you can use full gasoline, you can use 15% ethanol, or you can use 85% ethanol. And ethanol itself, is is that also, is it uh, accurate to say that that is an alcohol-based product, or is it just the, uh, the, the corn leftover that is uh, an alcohol-based product? It is pure alcohol. Absolutely pure alcohol. And uh, there's a law that they have to put gasoline in it within 24 hours so that the fraternity boys don't learn where it is <laughs> and uh, steal one of the train cars. <laughs> wow. You you also mentioned your, your book is quite extensive. Uh, it, it has 216 pages, and uh, you've gone into great depth. And from my understanding, you've tried to simplify this so that plain people like me can actually understand the complexity of the energy crisis that has uh, plagued the the world over the years. You uh, mention also in your book that hybrids and electric cars may not be the car of the future. Is that also correct? Well, I think, yes, it is, it is correct. And all one has to do to figure out what's going on there is to look at when gas prices get high, what happens. Mm. All you have to do is look at Europe, where the gas prices are 7 and $8 a gallon, and what they're driving there are small internal combustion engine cars. And you see more and more of those in the United States. And uh, we'll continue to see those. One of the things people forget, and I was at the General Motors Research Institute, is that the internal combustion engine, which started with Henry Ford, is now still improving in terms of miles. There are small cars that now get 60 miles a gallon, which is more than you get in a hybrid. 
the other thing is that there's a high cost in batteries, but if you want real evidence about the uh, electrics and the hybrids being used, there is a, a, a trade-in. If people quit using these alternative cars, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and electrics, when they trade them in, only 50% of the people buy another alternative car. Interesting. And, 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 and so what that tells you is that 50% of the people who are driving the alternative cars are not satisfied with them, and they're not going to buy another one. Well, that tells you something about not just the technical part of the car, but the experience of driving it. And the other thing that's happening with, with these alternative cars is that they are heavily subsidized by the government. Uh, in the United States, uh, they're subsidized up to $7,500, and uh, that runs out when uh, a dealer has sold 200000 or a company sold 200000 so that's eventually going to run out. Mm. That happened in Japan. Hybrids were selling big, and when the government took off the subsidy, the sales went to about 5% of what they used to be, and the same thing's going to happen in the United States. And the cost of batteries, uh, replacement replacement batteries, is really, really high uh, over the cost of replacing an engine, is it not? It's, uh, it's extremely high. In fact, if you say, what's the problem with the hybrids, the plug-in hybrids, and the electrics, in one word, it's batteries. Mm. Well, it's and the second one is the pleasure of driving. And that's why only 50% of the people who turn in an alternative car buy a new one. So if you want to buy an alternative car, what you do is go to somebody who's driven one for two years and they trade it on, and you get it for 50% of the new price. Wow. Nuclear energy. That's the big message. What what did what what have you uh, d- displayed or or talked about uh, relating to nuclear? There's a lot of uh, concern about that type of energy and its uh, effect on the environment. How do you view it? Well, if you look at nuclear power as opposed to all the other ways of electricity, the first point is that nuclear power is just at the beginning of its development. Hmm. If you look at all other ways of electricity. There, uh, with exceptional solar, they're about a hundred percent as efficient as they're going to be. With nuclear power, uh, they're only about twenty percent as efficient as they're going to be. And let me just tell you about a few developments in nuclear power. There is a nuclear power reactor as big as a hot tub. Wow! That can produce electricity for twenty thousand people. It's buried underground. It doesn't have to be refueled for 10 years. It's completely safe, and it produces electricity for 20,000 people. Now, let's say you have a town of 20,000 people somewhere in Africa. All you do is go in. You put one of these hot hot tubs in the ground. Now, everybody has electricity. There are 3 billion people in the world who do not have either electricity or adequate electricity, three billion. What's going to happen as soon as these uh, hot tub size reactors are on an assembly line is 
they're going to be made and shipped all over the world and put in place. They don't have to be refueled for 10 years. Now, here's another new development, and this one is backed by Bill Gates. He is developing with his team a reactor that uses as fuel nuclear waste. Hmm. Wow. That ends the nuclear waste problem when this particular reactor gets underway. And I think it will be successful because it, it depends on how much capital you can put in it. And unless I miss my guess, Gates has a little bit of capital. A possibility. Boy, that, so that, those that's are, amazing. Those are a couple of the things. Uh, uh, a third thing is a third thing is that all of the all of the uh, nuclear power plants now, the big ones, have a containment facility that contains any radiation from escaping 14 feet thick with steel. Right. Now, one of the crises was Three Mile Islands, right? Right. How many people died in the Three Mile Island crisis? Zero. How many died from uh, nuclear exposure in Fukushima? Zero, Zero died. How many people have ever died from nuclear power uh, exposure in the United States since the beginning? Zero. Zero. How many people have died in the United States from dams breaking? 7,000. Mm. That's an amazing statistic. You uh, you have also touched on wind, on wind power and Europe. Uh, I've traveled to Europe uh, several times and just got back from Italy a while back, and the wind turbines are everywhere. What is your perspective on their energy usage and their energy uh, bend towards wind power and ours? Well, wind power is never going to be used produce baseload power. Hmm. And here's why. If you uh, take a large nuclear power plant, the, the kind that you say, which are, which are now safe, uh, 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 the, the uh, problem of Three Mile Island wasn't a crisis or a disaster. It was a demonstration of how safe nuclear power plants are because the average radiation that a person got is the same as a dental x-ray. Now, when you look at wind, for small communities or small production of electricity, it works. But to equal a nuclear power plant, you have to have 270 square miles of windmills. Wow. 270 square miles. The reason you have to have them is wind is only 33% effective. Coal is 100% effective in the terms that it always turns out electricity. Natural gas always turns out electricity. Nuclear energy always turns out electricity. Water turns out electricity. But a windmill turns out electricity 33% of the time. Now, solar will also be used on houses and small applications. But it can't equal the amount put out by one nuclear power plant unless you have 70 square miles of solar panels. So both wind and solar will be used for small applications, but they will never replace a nuclear power plant. 
and the nuclear power plants are going to get more and more efficient. One of the problems with nuclear power is if you look it up, go Google, go, uh, Google, you see a picture of a nuclear power plant, and then you see a picture of an atomic explosion. Well, people don't understand it. It's explained in the book. A nuclear power plant cannot explode because the uranium in a nuclear power plant is only enriched 5%. To make an atomic weapon, it has to be enriched 90%. So it is physically impossible for a nuclear power plant to, to blow up. This is fascinating information. Uh-huh. There, there's a great emotional, uh, I, I think... Uh, I don't, I don't know if the word attachment is correct, but a, a great emotional response, I guess it would be, to nuclear power and also to the wind turbines. And wind turbines themselves are not necessarily environmentally friendly, from what I have read. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, they are anything that covers 270 square miles is not going to be environmentally sound. And anything that covers 70 square miles is not going to be environmentally sound. The major problem with nuclear power is solved by reading my book because the major problem with nuclear power is that people have not been educated on it and the difference between my book and a lot of other books you read is that I was a professor and what a good professor does is to take very complicated issues and put them in words that the average reader, the common reader, the person with a high school education can read it. And what I've done is taken all of the 50-cent words out of the book. I've also taken out all of the formulas. So the important thing is they understand it conceptually, they understand some facts about it, and the people I've talked to who have read the book's just been published say the thing that I like the best about the book is that I could read it, I could understand it, and I could keep the important parts in my head. Because uh, you read an, uh, some book on nuclear energy and you get about three pages and there are formulas. So this book was designed for the common person, it looks like from the reviews, that that's exactly what we're doing because there is such great misperception. But one time through the book, and you'll see why nuclear power is the electricity producer of the future. There's no doubt about it. You've included a lot of graphs and uh, uh, sketches, those types of things that are uh, an addendum to your, your text. How long did it take you, Gary, to complete the book? Well, it took about two and a half years. Uh, And one of the reasons is that I had all the information, but just information, we have an overload of information, and what's critical is that you formulate it and communicate it in a way that people can understand. And so we went through a great deal of editing and had a lot of people read it, and ask them, is there something in here you don't understand? And if they said, yes, we rewrite it. And so that's why it took uh, uh, two and a half years to write. Phenomenal. But we think the finished product is probably the best book on clean energy, not because it has the best information in it, 
but because people can understand it. Well, thank you for sharing this story. And the title, again, is The Future of Clean Energy. My guest, author Gary Schwindeman. Let me spell that name for you in case you're doing a search online. It's S-C-H-W-E-N-D-I-M-A-N. Dr. Schwindeman, where can they get copies of your book? They can order it on Amazon, either by uh, looking at my name or the name of the book, The Future of Clean Energy. Phenomenal task completing this, and uh, certainly an important read for anybody that has some concerns about the environment and uh, perhaps the future of of energy. I love the title, The Future of Clean Energy, not just a, a paper with opinions in it, but wonderfully researched. Thank you again, Gary, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.